We've been studying different gospel encounters. We've been focusing more on Jesus Christ and how he saw the lost and how he interacted with the lost. I'd like to take a few opportunities and move past the ministry of Jesus into the book of Acts to see how some of his disciples followed through with the Great Commission and how they shared their faith with individuals. And the one we're going to look at today is, is one of my favorite stories. Of course, I think I say that every week. Uh, the more I study it, the more it just, it's just a fantastic story. Uh, it's an amazing example of what can happen when there is a, a sinful person, a hungry seeker that's, that comes together with a ready disciple in the providence of God and how God orchestrated that together and what ended up happening as a result of that. Uh, let's pick up our reading in verse 26, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back and put some context with this and uh, see what we can learn from this biblical account here today. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure and who had come to Jerusalem for to worship, he was returning and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join yourself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generations? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh this prophet, himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Father, I thank you for this account that we're going to look at today. I thank you for Philip and his willingness to be sensitive to your spirit and obey you. I thank you for the conversion of this man that we see in this passage. Father, there's truths that we can learn today that I think will help us and equip us to better be servants for you as we take the gospel and try to share it with those around us. Teach us today, Father, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, I think it'd be good to set it in its context. We've been in the Gospels for quite a while. We've been looking at accounts of Jesus. Uh, here, obviously, we've moved past that. And so in the context, we see that Jesus, Jesus has been crucified, and he's been buried and resurrected, and he's ascended back to heaven, as we see that in the very beginning parts of the book of Acts. Uh, shortly before that, he gave the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, uh, the idea of go into all the world, disciple all nations, baptize all nations. In Acts chapter 1, he kind of reiterates that in just a little different flavor. As he said, you're going to receive power. Wait here in Jerusalem, and you're going to receive power. But once you receive power, now you need to go and be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. <clears throat> so 
they're waiting in Jerusalem, and we see next in the passage that Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit does come. He empowers the apostles, and they're preaching, and they're preaching in different languages because there's so many different people that were still there in Jerusalem uh, from many, many different nations, and people are getting saved, not by the tens or by the hundreds, but by the thousands. I mean, this moving of the Holy Spirit is an incredible time uh, to be there in Jerusalem during that time of Pentecost. But as you can imagine, this is stirring up the Jewish leaders as well. They thought they'd taken care of things when they put Jesus Christ on the cross. But instead of actually taking care of it, they turned this little campfire now into a forest fire. It's like instead of water, they threw gasoline on the flames. And it's just spreading all over the place. And they don't know what to do. And so persecution now begins to follow. They begin to try to stamp this out. And every time they stomp on a little bit of fire, it it spreads it into more places. It's it's the best picture that I can think of. Uh, They take the the apostles and they they put some of them in, in prison. There's different things that are happening that way. As we move further into the book of Acts, we see uh, the persecution getting severe. Uh, We see Stephen, who's been uh, selected as a deacon, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's disputing and and preaching and arguing with these different Jewish leaders. He's confounding them. They They can't relate to him. They can't understand what he's saying. They can't argue with him. And because of that, they arrest Stephen. And then in chapter 7, we see this incredible sermon. You know, one of, if not the longest sermon, I guess the Sermon on the Mount is longer, but one of the longest sermons we see in Scripture, a powerful message that he brings to these leaders. Uh, The message angers them, and so they take him outside and they stone him. And who is it that's watching while this is taking place? Who is it that's consenting unto this death, holding the coats? It's Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And he's out there at that point. And so that begins another phase of persecution Uh, We see the death of Stephen, we see the zeal of Saul, we see the scattering now of believers. And as we get to chapter 8, it's it's quite a contrast in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him as he's put into the ground. And then verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. He ravaged the church, entering into every house where believers were, inhaling men and women and committing them to prison, um, Saul, he, he just was motivated even more and more to continue persecuting these believers. So what was the result of that? Uh, as this was taking place, um, the scattering of believers, all of a sudden now the gospel is going further and further out. Look in verse 4, therefore they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. <laughs> That's what's taking place. Uh, this persecution is driving them into other areas, but they're going with the gospel. And what these Jewish leaders meant for evil, God is now using to fulfill his purpose. It's like he's helping them to fulfill the Great Commission because of the the evil that these people are bringing upon them. So the gospel is now going from Judea into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's going from the Jews to the Gentiles. And that's the context that we now find this story where, where we see Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. Well, there's two characters in the story, and I think let's look at them individually, and then we'll get to the story itself. What do we know about Philip? Well, we can start by saying it's not the same Philip that was a disciple of Christ. We see them itemized there earlier in the book of Acts. Uh, This is a different individual. Um, If you look back with me to Acts chapter 6, we see that there's some difficulty in the early church. We often think, wow, that must have been so much fun and so exciting to see so many people saved all at once. But can you imagine the growing pains that must have come along with that? As these people are now new believers and they're trying to assimilate together and you've got all these different nationalities. 
And there was a bit of an issue going on in the daily ministration, it says, as they're trying to take care of individuals. They wanted to take care of the widows. And the Greek widows felt like they were being neglected. The Jewish widows were being taken care of. And I don't think it was intentional. I think it was just happening. And so as the, as the apostles were considering this, uh, they encouraged the congregation to say, look you out, men of good report. And look down in verse, um, in verse 3. Uh, Honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business. And it pleased the congregation. So as a group, they selected seven individuals. And we see that list given for us in verse 5. Uh, the first one was Stephen, who we've talked about, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And the next one is Philip. That's the individual we're talking about here. He was chosen by the church at that point to be a deacon. It's interesting, if you look down that list, every one of those names uh, has a Greek background. I think a lot of these were Greek men, which is interesting as the problem was with the Greek widows. Uh, there was some wisdom involved in the people they selected. You know, if these people are being neglected, let's get people that will definitely care for them and, uh, and do their best to, to make that right. We also see that these men were chosen by the congregation, an early indication of church polity. Why do we govern our church the way we govern? It's based on the example that we see in the New Testament. It was the congregation that made this decision. And we make decisions as a congregation as well. We have leadership that leads and, and, and points the way, but it, we decide as a church. And that's what will happen in our business meeting today as we work through some of these things. So I wanted to kind of point that out. We see it here in the passage. Um, so we see him chosen as a deacon. That tells us he was a man of honest report, of integrity, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Secondly, we see him, he's part of this persecution and part of those that are fleeing. If you look down on Acts chapter 8 and in verse 5, verse 4, they're being scattered everywhere. And Philip, in verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So this deacon in the church, he's now moving on and God has gifted him. And he's moving on to other responsibilities. And he goes down to Samaria, and it says he preached Christ unto them. And look at verse 6. The people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Look down to verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. He's now in Samaria, and there's this huge revival taking place. Now, we don't know how many people are trusting Christ, but it's a significant number. Uh, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to heal and to cast out demons. Many people are believing. Many people are being baptized. So much so that it even word gets back to Jerusalem. I'm guessing people were posted on their Twitter and, and on their Instagram feeds. And uh, word was getting out. And, and now in Jerusalem, the, the, the apostles are like, wow, what's going on in Samaria? And so they send Peter and John up to check it out and to, to, to minister and to, to continue teaching. Well, as they go there, what does that do? It frees up Philip. And now Philip is taken from that area, and we see this account with the Ethiopian eunuch that happens next. At the end of that, uh, we read in the passage that he goes from Azotus up to Caesarea, an uh, in indication that possibly he actually settled down then in Caesarea. We don't know if he started a church, um, but he marries, uh, he has children. And the next thing we see about Philip is in Acts chapter 21, when Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops there in Caesarea and spend several days, many days, with Philip in his house uh, with his family. And that's the last that we see of this man, Philip. So the little snippets that we find in the scripture as we look at this individual. Well, moving on, the second character that we see is the eunuch. And as we look in the story, it says that he was a man of Ethiopia. And that's a, an unusual word. We only find it twice in the New Testament, and it's here in this, in both in, in this passage right here. Uh, the indication is one of a black countenance. Uh, which would fit from the, the location that he was in. 
when we think Ethiopia, we're, we have a specific area in Africa in mind. I don't think that's the exact place that he was from. Um, I, I think it's a different, a different area. And so Ethiopia, we think of it today as a little bit further down. This is the biblical land of Cush. And it would be located on the Nile River south of Egypt, probably present-day Sudan is where this kingdom would be located, uh, where this man was from. Um, not exactly the same location. There's some interesting historical background that you can dig into that, um, that will relate some of the things that we're seeing here and verifies uh, what Luke is telling us. Not that we doubt Luke, but it's fun when archaeology and history supports and backs up what we see in the text. We see that he was a man of high position. It says that he was a eunuch and a eunuch of great authority. Um, eunuch can be used two different ways. It can be used in a literal sense, uh, the way we typically understand the word. And that's possible that that was the case. Um, if a man was in charge of the king's harem or if he was working closely with the queen, uh, those steps would be taken uh, for practical and sometimes for political reasons. Uh, but whether that was the case with this man, I don't know, because the word is also used in reference to a high-ranking official, someone that was involved in the court, a trusted counselor. Um, back in the Old Testament, it's not the same word because it's Hebrew and Aramaic back then, but um, Potiphar was referred to, and the word that's used there is the idea of a eunuch. And yet Potiphar was a married man, uh, we know, because it was his wife that tempted Joseph. And so it's not always leading, uh, referring to a, to a male that had been castrated, um, I, I think it's possible, it's likely that he was more referenced to a high-ranking official um, as what was referred to here, and we'll look at maybe some reasons for that in just a little bit. Um, but regardless, he was a man of great authority. He reported directly to Candace the queen, the passage says here. And there are historical accounts of a Candace living in the middle, uh, the capital city of Meroe, which would be this area of, of Cush, uh, or their, their version of Ethiopia. Uh, Candace was not a proper name. It was probably more pronounced Candace, and it would be like the Egyptian pharaoh or like the Roman Caesar. It was more of a title. And so she was the queen, the queen mother, and, um, and that's how they referred to her, and that's a historical term. Uh, there is an account of one uh, called Candace or Candace who was a, I'm trying to think how they worded it. She only had one eye, and she was a very masculine woman. <laughs> it's later on in, in history, so it's not the same time frame as this. Uh, but as you read in history, you find that there was definitely individuals like that. Uh, this is real. Uh, this is exactly what was taking place. As we read on in the story, we see he was a man of great character. It says he was in charge of all of her treasure. Uh, she trusted him. In order to, to give him that kind of control and that kind of power, uh, he was a man of integrity. But we see also that he was a man of faith. Uh, as it's worded here in verse 27, he had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Does that catch you funny? Why would this man from an area south of Egypt come all the way up to Jerusalem to worship God? How did he hear about God? How did he know about him? Had he become a Jewish proselyte? All these questions that go through my mind and questions that we don't really have answers to. You know, the persecution that took place in Acts was driving the gospel far and wide. And it's possible that it even happened before that. As you look at when Jesus was crucified and then you look at Pentecost and all these individuals getting saved, they were from all these different nationalities. It's possible that word could have gotten back to that area at that, at that time. We don't know the answer to that. One of the accounts that I was reading uh, speculates that it was possible even back to the kingdom of Solomon, the queen of Sheba may have been from this area. There's two competing views. Was, it from, was she from Africa or was she from Arabia? And we don't really know the answer to that. 
Um, but he was making the case that uh, it was possible that the Queen of Sheba brought back Jewish traditions with her when she, was, when she returned after seeing Solomon. We don't know for sure. Somehow this man had found out about, about the Judaism, and he was coming to worship. Whether he was a proselyte, whether he had actually converted to Ju- Judaism, I, I kind of think maybe he had. Why, why go to all the trouble of making that trip if you were just going to check it out? Um, I, I think that he was likely a, a proselyte. And yet he was a man of faith. And somehow he'd picked up a scroll of Isaiah. <laughs> How did that happen? How did God superintend that and work that out? And he was reading as he wrote. So that's the characters in our story. Philip and this man from Ethiopia. So with the setting in mind and now a little deeper understanding of these characters, let's, let's dive into the story, shall we? As we work our way into it, it says in verse 26, The angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south, uh, from Jerusalem down to Gaza, which is desert. We know the location in our mind because this is front and center in our world right now. Israel, the Gaza Strip, it's the same locations. Uh, that has not changed. So if you're picturing that map and you're, what you've been seeing on the news, that Gaza Strip, that's the idea. That's the direction that he's going. Uh, it, it's called the, the desert highway that he would be traveling. But what I want us to see here, first of all, is a, perple- a perplexing change of venue. Where is Philip? He's in Samaria. What's he doing? He's preaching the gospel. What's happening? A huge revival. I mean, people are getting saved by, by, the, by the scores, and they're being baptized, and they're following uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a moving of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the work is going well. In our modern vernacular, Philip's killing it. I mean, he is accomplishing so much there at that point. And from a human perspective, we'd say, why pull him out? Why would you pull him from that when he's accomplishing so much for the Lord? Um, but God needed him somewhere else, didn't he? It kind of struck me as it's almost like taking your MVP out of the game. Why would you do that? And yet God had other plans. There's a man that needed to hear the gospel, and evidently Philip was the perfect person to share the gospel with him. And so God moves him in this this way. We see, secondly, a sensitive and obedient believer. Philip was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He was sensitive to the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 26. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go, verse 27, and he arose and went. <laughs> that connection right there. As soon as he heard, he went. There's a sense of urgency both in the angel's proclamation and in Philip's obedience. First of all, he heard. He was listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder for us as we go through the day, are we sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Or are we just focused on our agenda and getting done the things that we think we need to get done? But he not only heard, but he also obeyed. I think Philip could have thought of a number of reasons why this wasn't the best idea. (laughs) I think he was probably enjoying the spiritual success. I don't want to use that word in in a casual way, but enjoying the ministry that he was having there. God was working. He was being used. Uh, And now he's giving a new assignment. He's being relocated. And it doesn't seem like a promotion. (laughs) You're here in Samaria, and you're working, and you're seeing all these things happen, and now God says, I want you to go down to south of Jerusalem, down towards Gaza, to the desert. What's in the desert? Desert. (laughs) It's not going to be a place that you're going to want to go and hang out. It doesn't seem like the best of scenarios, the best of reassignments. And yet Philip does not argue with the Lord. He accepts this new assignment from the Lord. And as we work down through here, we see there's specific instructions and yet incomplete instructions. Did you catch that? He gives him direction. I want you to go down to the south. Here's the road that I want you to take. But that's all he gives him. 
There's nothing else as far as here's who I want you to talk to. Uh, here's how long you're going to be there. Here's who, who I want you to, to, to stay with. None of that is given. It's almost an Abrahamic kind of thing where God came to Abraham and said, I want you to go. And Abraham says, okay, I'll go. He didn't know how far. I don't know how he explained that to Sarah. <laughs> I don't know how he got her on board with, I don't know where we're going or how long we're going to be gone. But here Philip accepts this and he decides to go ahead and go. Um, it's not really a huge deal in the passage, but it's kind of interesting. Um, as he says, you're supposed to go down by the way of the south, towards the south. That word is interesting. It can mean one of two things. If it's used in relationship to time, it's translated noon. And if it's used in relationship to location, it's translated south. That's an interesting language where you can have a word mean different things. Um, in Acts chapter 22, where Paul is recounting his, uh, his conversion experience, and he says that he was struck with his blinding light about noon. That's the same word that we see here. And so he's giving the time of day as he was traveling. Here, I think it's very clearly respect to location. I want you to go south. Take the way or take the road down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And so he begins to go and he obeys. As we work down through the passage a little further, we see a divine encounter. Verse 27, he arose and went and behold, a man of Ethiopia. There's a lot that takes place just in this little phrase. He's got to travel from where he's at in Samaria down to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem taking this road now south towards Gaza. And it's all taken some time. But as he goes there, he encounters a man. And it's a good reminder to us that God does not alter our plans without reason. And for Philip, this reason was about to become abundantly clear. Here comes a chariot. And I don't think it was just one. I, I put in your notes an Ethiopian entourage. I don't think a man of this caliber and of this importance would be traveling alone. One, it's a long journey. And two, it's desert country. I think he had a driver in his chariot for sure. And I think there were other support chariots along uh, just to accompany this man, a powerful man, on this mission. And that's how I envision it anyway, as, as all of a sudden these chariots are now coming and rolling up by, beside Philip. And it's at this point now that Philip gets the next, the next set of instructions. It didn't all come at once. It came as he was willing to be obedient. His obedience is rewarded with further information. And so now it says that the Spirit, turn the page here, verse 29, the Spirit said unto Philip, go near and join yourself to this chariot. We see follow-up instructions and an eager obedience. Obedience is rewarded with further information. And Philip obeys immediately as well. He runs to join himself to the chariot. He runs to catch up. And as he does, we see an amazing opportunity. Notice what happens. As he ran thither, he heard him reading. It was customary in those days to read out loud. Uh, reading, you know, we, we're kind of used to holding a book and just sit there and reading quietly just in our mind. Um, back then, they did a lot more reading out loud. And so he, whether he was reading and letting his driver hear or just reading it out loud, uh, that's likely what was taking place. And picture Philip now as he's running up to the chariot and he hears this man reading. He's like, wait a second. That doesn't sound like Plato. <laughs> That's not Socrates. This guy's reading the Bible. And he begins to think about it and listen a little closer. Then he puts two and two together. He's reading from Isaiah. Now, he didn't say reading Isaiah 53 because chapters hadn't been inserted at that point yet. But he knew the passage where this man was reading. And what an amazing opportunity it's like the Holy Spirit just teed it up for Philip perfectly, didn't he? Put him at the right place and the right time. Put this man in the right frame of mind, reading the right passage. And I still wonder, how did he get a copy of the Isaiah scroll? 
Why was he just happening to be reading from Isaiah chapter 53? God was at work. You couldn't ask for a better setup to share the gospel. God put him in an amazing opportunity, but not just that, we see the opportunity accepted. You know, folks, it doesn't matter how clearly and how well God tees up the opportunity. It doesn't come to any fruition if we aren't willing to act. And I wonder sometimes in my life, as I look back, did the Holy Spirit just give me an opportunity that I missed? Did he just tee it up for me so perfectly as well, but I never went and swung the club? But here Philip doesn't do that. He takes advantage of the opportunity, and notice how he does that. As Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, what does he do? He asks a question. Do you understand what you're reading? He asks a simple question. Questions are great ways to open the door to spiritual discussions. And that's what Philip uses here at this point. He, he asks the question, do you understand? And that question now opens the door to further conversation. Notice what the man says. He says, how can I except some man should guide me? I need some instruction here. I don't understand this. I can't understand this unless somebody shares it and helps me to see the truth. What a wonderful thought. <clears throat> He asks Philip at this point then to join him in the chariot. And as Philip crawls up in the chariot and they take off again, the, the man asks uh, Philip a question. Who is this guy speaking about? This prophet that I'm reading here in the story, is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? He asks that question, and that gives the opportunity for Philip now to, to launch into the gospel. And we see next a sermon from the Old Testament. Uh, what does Philip say? In verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. The first step was he opened his mouth. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find that to be the hardest step. <laughs> Anybody else struggle with that? We know the truth, we know the story, and sometimes we even sense that this is an opportunity that the Holy Spirit has given to us. But to get that point where we're saying, I'm willing to open my mouth. And here Philip did it. He opened his mouth, and God filled it. <laughs> he opened his mouth, and God helped him to know what to say. He began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Folks, we see two things right here. First of all, we see the plight of the sinner. They can't understand the truth unless it's explained to them, and then the Holy Spirit turns the light on for them. But we also see the power of the soul winner. Where does our power come from? It's not from our intellect and from our perfectly crafted speeches or whatever we try to put together. It comes from just sharing Jesus Christ. He preached unto him Jesus. And he did it here from this passage in Isaiah 53. We're not going to take the time this morning. We could go back and probably do it. If, if we were doing a full Sunday night service, this is where I would have gone with it. I would have gone back to Isaiah 53 and worked through the aspects of the gospel that we see there. Um, it's all there in Isaiah 53. It's understandable why it's been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Um, everything we see, especially if you start two verses before, the last two verses of chapter 52, and then you work your way down through the rest of that passage. The gospel we know is the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think you can find all three of those elements in Isaiah 53. We see the fact of sin is mentioned. Uh, the idea of punishment for sin is mentioned. The need for a substitute is mentioned. The provision of a perfect lamb is there. The sufficiency of the payment. Uh, propitiation is taught in Isaiah 53, if you're looking at it. 
the exaltation of the Savior. If he's exalted, he has to be alive. How is he alive after he's dead? He had to have raised from the dead. Folks, it's all there. And I don't know how long Philip took as he was working. They were in the chariot. They were driving. They were moving down the road. How long did Philip go? I'm not sure. What other passages did he go to? I don't know. I'd like to hear that sermon. I think it'd be a great one to preach next Sunday if I could get a hold of it, but I haven't found a manuscript. (laughs) Um, When we get to heaven, those are things I want to know. I want to talk to people and find some of these things out. But he preached unto him Jesus Christ. And it was a thorough description. He covered all the bases because we see next an exciting conversion. As we look down in the next verse, verse 36, As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, wait a second. Is he getting the cart before the horse a little bit? Well, possibly. Uh, I think as we understand where he's coming from, it makes sense. Uh, I think Philip covered the bases of the gospel. I think he talked about baptism. That would be on his mind because he'd heard the commission from the Lord as far as the baptism being part of that uh, in, in the Great Commission. But think about this. If this eunuch is indeed a proselyte, what would that mean? I mean, he understood the Jewish faith. He was converting to the Jewish faith. And what was the outward sign that he was converting? It was baptism. And so he would make that connection, the idea here that he would understand baptism to be a sign of his conversion, a seal of his commitment, um, a public demonstration of his desire to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, We're not teaching here in this passage that baptism saves, but that baptism is the outward symbol of the inward reality. And that becomes clear as we look at the next verse. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And notice his answer. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What a clear confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, that's all it takes. That's all that's necessary. We go back to to John 3 in our study of Nicodemus. You've got to believe. And once you believe and have faith and repentance is involved in that and the new birth happens... And Philip, when he heard what this man said, he was convinced. He covers everything. He uses the word Jesus. He understands the idea of a Savior. Uh, Jesus Christ, the idea of the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that's going to be the king. The fact that he is the Son of God, he understood the deity of Christ. And I wonder if part of what he's saying here is, hey, I came to worship in the temple, but I didn't understand what I was doing. But now, after you've explained this to me, Now I understand and I see that all these sacrifices pointed to somebody. It pointed to Jesus Christ. And I believe that he is my Messiah. I believe that he is the Son of God. Well, the driver, uh, he commands the driver of the chariot to stop. And so they pull over because they've come to water. And I don't believe this was just a little mud puddle because what does the text say? They got out of the chariot. They went down into the water and they came up out of the water. And Philip baptizes him there. And we learn some things about baptism here that we'll cover quickly. First of all, there's a condition. Conversion is the condition for baptism. That's the requirement. This man believed, and so then he was able to follow in believer's baptism. There's a reason we say it that way. We see the mode. We see its immersion. Uh, Philip didn't just get down there and sprinkle a little bit of water on him. He didn't take a cup and pour some over his head. They went down into the water, and they came up out of the water. We see the timing of baptism almost immediately after conversion. Now, in this case, that made sense. And in much of the New Testament, we see baptism happening very soon after that person trusted Christ, sometimes immediately. Here, it made sense. Philip's going out, of, uh, he's, the eunuch is going out of country, back to his home, right? He had never going to see Philip again. And, and this was the opportunity. There was water. Here was Philip. Baptize me. 
that made a lot of sense. But the proximity of baptism to salvation, it should be close. It should take place, should take place close. There needs to be understanding. We don't want to get so far so fast that we just baptize right away. They need to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. That's significant. But it's strange to me how this man wanted to be baptized right away, and yet we see some believers that just put it off and put it off and sometimes put it off even indefinitely. And, folks, that's, that's going too far. That's not the way it should be. And there's a reason that we say that baptism is the first step of obedience. It's what we should do quickly after we're saved, uh, once we understand so there was a condition, we see the mode, we see the timing. I think we also see the seriousness of this. And maybe you, maybe you didn't consider this as you were looking at the text, but I think he was counting the cost here. If there was indeed an entourage with him, even, even if there was only one or two other chariots, him stopping and being baptized here publicly in front of these people, word's going to get back to his homeland what took place. I mean, they could be talking, man, what, what in the world happened here? We're driving along, and all of a sudden he pulls over, and this guy gets up in the chariot, and they're talking for a little while, and all of a sudden he gets out, and he's professing his faith in Jesus, and he goes and gets dunked in the water. You know, th- this is happening, and people are going to understand that. And that's going to go back and follow him home. And I think he did that, and I think it was a, 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 something that he had thought through. He uses the phrase, what does hinder me from being baptized? I think if someone didn't want to be baptized, they could have thought of a lot of reasons. But he was making a public statement, understanding full well that it would follow him home. I think he's saying, I embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm fully prepared now to let the whole world know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And we see at the later end of that verse that he went on his way rejoicing. I think that's a good reminder for us. That's the purpose of baptism. It's publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. It's proclaiming to those around us that we are Christ followers. We're unashamedly following this one called Jesus Christ. And that's why when we have baptisms, we invite friends and family to come and witness that so they can see what's going on. Sometimes we do it publicly. We've done it down at the camp. And we've had people around at the lake looking at us like, what's going on? And as they listen, they hear the purpose and they see the reason for it. It's public. So I guess I would ask you today, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, have you been baptized? Boy, if not, you need to. It's a step of obedience that we need to take. Philip was a great example for us, doing it quickly, doing it immediately. Well, we work our way next, and we see a very abrupt ending to the story, don't we? I look down to the next verse. It says, they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. This was supernatural. Caught him up and took him to Azotus. He was found in Azotus, and he preached through that area and the other cities till he came to Caesarea. Imagine the look on the eunuch's face. <laughs> all of a sudden he's here, all of a sudden he's gone. And uh, he went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> Poor Philip. He probably doesn't know if he's coming or going. Lord, what's next? Um, again, I try to put myself into these situations a little bit. I can't imagine what that must have been like. But he preached Jesus. He continued doing everything that he'd been doing. He went to Samaria preaching Jesus Christ. Here he sees the eunuch, he preaches Jesus Christ. He now goes to Azotus and all the way up through Caesarea, and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, That's why we see Philip uh, referred to as Philip the Evangelist uh, there in Acts chapter 21. Well, what happened to the eunuch? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I don't know what happened to him. Did he bring the gospel to his people? Uh, Did his family get saved? Did he start a church there in that area? Was he greatly used by God? I don't know the answers to those questions. We don't see anything else in Scripture about this man. We're left a little bit to our speculation. Um, 
But one thing that I do see, and maybe I'm off base here, but for God to save this man in such a dramatic way tells me he had plans for him. What those plans were, we won't know this side of eternity, um, but we'll find out when we get to heaven, and I'm excited to find that out as well. Let's draw some conclusions here as we wrap up this lesson. Just some thoughts that I think will help us as we try to apply this to our lives and how we uh, can be better equipped to, to share the gospel. Uh, number one, when God senses a seeking heart, he sends a willing servant. We see that here in this passage. When God senses a seeking heart, he sends a willing servant. My question is, are there people in our communities today that are still searching? The answer to that question is yes. They may not know exactly what it is they're looking for, but there's a a lack of peace. There's something that they're trying to figure out. And we need to be ready and willing to go just like Philip was. We need to be that willing servant that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit and hears his voice and, and can be directed in the right place. Secondly, God's in control of the chessboard. As I was reading this story and thinking about it this week, I kind of envisioned this big map or this big chessboard with pieces moving in different places and and the Lord superintending where everybody is going and what they're doing. He can move the pieces where he wants to move them. He's got a better view. Um, It may not always make sense. God may ask us to do things that we don't totally understand why. But trust him. Trust that he understands what he's doing and then just follow through just like Philip did and obey I'd follow that up with this one. Don't let incomplete information keep you from obeying the Holy Spirit. Has that ever happened to you? And it can be in a couple of different ways. I tend to want the big picture. I tend to like all the answers before I move. That kind of eliminates the need for faith, though, doesn't it, when I want it that way? Philip didn't have everything that he needed. He still went anyway. I like to feel prepared. Sometimes I think we fail to go because we don't think we know enough. We don't think we have all the answers, or we're unsure, what if they ask me this question? And we let those fears keep us from obeying God. We don't have to have all the answers. By the way, newsflash, you're never going to understand it all. And there's always going to be some question that they could ask that you won't know the answer to. And if that's what keeps us from going, then then we're making a mistake. We've got to trust God enough to go for it and to step out in faith, just like Philip did here in this situation. It's in Acts, the lost won't come to Christ without someone to guide them. And God wants to use you, and he wants to use me just like he used Philip uh, to take the gospel and lead someone to Jesus Christ. We saw this, and I commented on it, but we'll just mention it again. Questions are an excellent way to begin the conversation. They're an excellent way to gauge spiritual readiness as you're interacting with people on the gospel. There's an art to asking questions. There is. Uh, But it's also a learned skill. I'm looking out over people here, and almost everybody I see here, uh, many of you have been parents, uh, now you're grandparents. As a parent, is there an art to asking questions when your kids come home and you don't think they're giving you the whole story? I'm not talking about interrogating, that's kind of the same idea, but you learn to ask questions in certain ways to get answers, right? So they can't just say, well, no, or give you a one-word answer. It's the same idea with the gospel. Take those skills that you learned as a parent and now apply them to asking questions in gospel encounters. Get better at it. Think about how can I ask a question to this person that will will help them understand and get them to the point where I can continue this conversation. Uh, It's a skill that we need to develop, and I think we need to ask the Lord to help us with that. And then finally, the, the, the final thought here is at some point, we just have to open our mouths. At some point, we just have to trust God enough to say, I'm going to step through this door. I'm going to say something. 
I'm going to pass out the tract. I'm going to invite to church. I'm going to do something. We've got to take that step, and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Oh, may God give us the courage to open our mouths, to step through the door, to preach unto those around us Jesus 